much, and it smells so wonderful. I get to smell this this whole time. What a gift. It's always, always good to be back. Um, this church and all of you hold a very, very special place in our hearts. Some of our best memories are here. Every so often, Dante and I will remember, do you remember that huge pyramid that we built back for VBS? And, or that time that we had built, um, I think it was the marketplace for a VBS and it was really windy and it was one, I think it was Bob Dixon who called my husband and said, your marketplace is on the ground. And so we just all got together and I remember after potluck, we all just met and said, how do we put this all back together? And, and all the men brought their toys, their power tools. <laughs> and started drilling and cutting and we made the, the marketplace happen in the patio and it was just, we have such just amazing memories of this church so it's always, always good to be back. Today for Women's Ministry Sabbath, um, I dove into scripture and, and it's my prayer and my hope that um, what we will share together this morning will be something that will stay in our hearts. As I was thinking about scripture, I thought how it's always good to evaluate things from a variety of lenses. It's prudent to consider other options and insights before we come to our own hard and fast conclusions. Has it ever happened to you that you have an idea or a thought and then it's challenged? And then you come to the realization after exploring others' input and their evaluations that maybe your idea wasn't necessarily the right one or the best one? It's funny, a story from a little bit ago about a shoe manufacturer who decided to open the, the market in the Congo, he decided to send two of his best salesmen to go out there and kind of explore this unexplored territory. And the story goes that one of the salesmen went out there and he observed and then he reported back to this manufacturer and he said the marketplace here is terrible because here in this area no one wears shoes. The other salesman a few days later then reported back to this manufacturer and said the marketplace here, the, pros the, the prospect for the market is wonderful because everyone is barefooted. And when you think about it, yes, perspective matters. So this morning, I'd like to invite you to relive a Bible story with me. And it's found in the book of John in chapter 4. And it's a story that I'm sure many of you have heard. Many sermons have been preached about this story. It's a story about a Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at a well. It's a story where the sinner and the Savior come face to face. It's a story where we get to be witnesses to the awe and discovery and the reaction that this woman has to the realization that she has been in front of not just a prophet, which actually would have been kind of cool too, but she has been in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the presence of the Messiah. This is a story about the gospel, the good news of salvation. It's a love story. 
It's a God story. We've got this Bible account pretty well figured out. Jesus takes this sinful Samaritan woman, this bad girl of the Bible, and he helps her to take a really good look at her sinful life. He lets her know that he knows about the parade of husbands that have been through her life. And he offers her living water. He offers her salvation. But wait. Let's just stop for a second. Wait. Is this really how the story goes? Is this really how the story ought to be told? Is this the only conclusion that we can draw from this Bible account? Is it possible that perhaps, just maybe, that we might be missing something? This morning, I want to invite you to kind of journey with me. And perhaps we can dig deeply together and consider this story from yet a different perspective. But first, first, let's get a little bit of context. Let's review the biblical narrative. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me or turn them on to John chapter 4. And we're going to start at verse 7. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. And then um, you'll follow along with me. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and livestock? Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. Verse 17. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. The woman said, we're going to jump to verse 25 because they engage in conversation about where one should worship. And then in verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now the popular reading 
of John 4 tends to be centered exclusively on a narrative that says that this Samaritan woman is a bad girl. She's a social outcast, an immoral woman living on the fringes of her society. And because of her bad reputation, no one wants to hang out with her, not even to go get water from a well. In a sermon on this passage, a famous preacher describes this Samaritan woman as a worldly, sensually-minded, unspiritual harlot from Samaria. But I think that the problem with this common interpretation of this biblical narrative is it messes up the story. I think it trips up the story. And I'm thinking, is it possible that we've accepted a common interpretation that might possibly be viewed from a different lens? Have we simply accepted the common hermeneutics of this text without question? Is it possible that in our modern day sermons, we've misunderstood and unjustly continued to marginalize this woman from Samaria? So this morning, I want to invite you to take a look at the story with me without any assumptions. And as much as possible from the prevailing culture of that time, within the context of the prevailing culture. Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee in this story, and we have a, a slide of a map. So I want to kind of show you, so if we can change the screen to the map, that would be helpful. See if they, if they um, follow along. The most effective way to get from point A, which was Judea, to point B in Galilee was to cross through Samaria. So Judea was in the south, Galilee was in the north, and in the middle, there was Samaria. Sadly, racial hatred and discrimination is not a new phenomenon. Unfortunately, this isn't something new. It was alive and well in the first century. Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, established their capital in Shechem and later at the hilltop city of Samaria. You see, the, Assyr the Assyrians conquered Israel in 772 BC. And they took the Israelite people into captivity. That was their custom. But what happened is that they left some Jews behind. Some remained in their territory. What the Assyrians did is that they brought in Gentile colonists from Babylon and Kutha and other regions to colonize this area that they had conquered. The problem was that these Gentiles showed up with their pagan customs, their pagan worship, their pagan idols. And what happened is that the Jews that had remained in the territory started to join in in these practices and pagan rituals. Interestingly, though, these Jews that remained, although they participated in, these, in this pagan worship, they also continued to worship the God of Israel. And then to complicate matters worse, they, they intermarried. And so all of a sudden, a new ethnic group emerges, known as the Samaritans. In the meantime, in the southern territory in Judah, the Babylonians had conquered that area. And they also took the people into exile and into captivity. 
The interesting thing is that about 70 years later, about 40 plus thousand remnant Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild, to rebuild their places of worship. The Samaritans opposed this repatriation because they figured we already have our place of worship. We've already established a holy place. But the Jews from Judah, the Jews that were coming out of Babylon to take over and rebuild Jerusalem were very upset with the Samaritans. These monotheistic Jews were very angry and now their Samaritan cousins were considered second-class citizens because the Jews prided themselves on their racial purity and on their worship of the one and only God. So their reaction to all of this is to just hate the Samaritans. Their Samaritan cousins were now second-class citizens. They were half-breeds, and they hated them. But Jesus loves all people. Jesus loves all of his children. Jews, Samaritans, you and me and all of us. And he refuses to fall in step with the discriminatory traditions and norms of the first century as well as those of our generation. Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would travel along the Jordan River to the east so that they didn't have to pass through Samaria. And I find it almost entertaining to see how Jesus reacts to all of this. He has no regard for, for cultural and religious norms of his day. And he emerges in this story as well as in other biblical accounts as a strong advocate for the reversal of the norm and the status quo. He's not caught up in all the traditions and the rules. He's not caught up in the mess that we make. He simply travels through Samaria to get to Galilee because that's where he's going. Scripture tells us that Jesus was tired. And I love that little piece that flavors the text. Jesus was tired. It tells me that Jesus gets who we are. He understands our humanity. He tired the way we do. And so he stops at this well. This well in Sychar, a Samaritan city near Jacob's well. And he sat there. And a Samaritan woman then approaches the well where he's sitting. So the way things should have played out at the well is that not a word should have been exchanged by anyone. Jesus should have remained silent because Jewish men and Jewish rabbis were not allowed to talk to women in public. The Samaritan woman should have simply brought her water jar and drawn from the well in silence and she should have left. Jesus knew about Samaritan history and the blend of their pagan religion and their worship of God. Jesus was very familiar with the Jewish desire to maintain their racial purity and their passion for following the rules. But Jesus' focus was not on their social norms 
that fostered unity, disunity and hatred. Jesus' passion and motivation was centered on one thing, on love. He saw the woman coming, and he wanted to reach out to her. So he starts the conversation. Wells were interesting places in first century biblical time. Wells were typically visited in the early morning hours or late evening hours when it was cooler in the day. They were places, I imagine, that were gathering places, places where mainly women came to gather water, to fetch water, but places, I believe, that were a place to catch up with your friends and your neighbors. I imagine that wells were also a place to catch up on the gossip and maybe even to hopefully build community. Wells were where a fundamental need was met. It was a place that you went to to quench your thirst and quench the thirst of your family. It was also a place to rest and refresh. It was a place for renewal. Wells represented life. What an appropriate place for Jesus and this woman to meet. Some authors suggest that very important events took place at Wells. Dr. Holoviak Valentine reminds us in her article, The Wedding at the Well, that it was at the well where Isaac's and Jacob's wives were identified. Wells were settings for courtship back in the day. Moses set eyes on his future wife at a well. But let me tell you that I am in no way, in no way suggesting that Jesus was looking for a wife. Okay, let me make that very clear. But I would propose that Jesus was wooing her, a Samaritan woman, a most objectionable woman, to come to know her Messiah, the one who loved her, the one who could satisfy her thirst in ways that simple water from a well could not. So let's talk a little bit about this Samaritan woman. This woman was actually doubly cursed. She was not only Samaritan, but she was a woman. And by simply speaking with a woman in public, any woman, Jesus was already breaking the rules. And Samaritan women were particularly objectionable and even considered unclean by many, unclean in Levitical terms. How sad. So of course this woman is surprised when Jesus asks her for a drink of water. She tells him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a, for a drink? Then he goes on to offer her living water. Confused and curious, she asks about this amazing water that if she drinks it, she will never thirst again. And then Jesus eventually invites her to call her husband. And when she tells him that she has no husband, he agrees. And he tells her, you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. And this is pretty much it. It is this sentence about the husbands that has branded her a sinful woman of the Bible, a girl with a shady past, a prostitute. Yet there is nothing in the passage that would make that the obvious interpretation. We, we tend to adopt the harshest reading of this text and place blame on the woman 
Maybe our Western culture and customs factor into this interpretation, but John as narrator does not offer that information, nor does Jesus as a central character. Theologians Gail O'Day and Susan Hyland suggest that the tone of judgment belongs to centuries of commentators and not to Jesus. In Jesus, this woman found kindness instead of critical superiority. It is important that we view this narrative in the correct cultural context. In biblical times, women had no voice. Marriages were arranged. And with the, when the woman or the girl was given to a man, the father's authority was transferred over to her new husband. In that era, divorce was the sole prerogative of the husband. And according to Old Testament law, the initiative in instituting divorce proceedings belonged exclusively, exclusively to the husband. The wife had no say, she had no voice. The reality is that this woman could have easily been widowed. She could have been abandoned or divorced. And in any one of these scenarios, any one of these could have resulted in the same thing. Because a woman without a father, a husband, a brother was an outcast. Five times... Five times would have been completely devastating and heartbreaking. There are any number of ways that we might imagine this woman's story as, as tragic rather than scandalous. Yet our tendency somehow is to assume the scandalous. If we really, really want to understand this Samaritan woman of the Bible, we need to be willing to join her on her lonely noonday walk to that well. We must begin by walking with her. Walk with her. By feeling her burden. The burden that women in the unseen margins of society have carried for millennia and continue to carry today. She walks as the many women before her and the many after her. On this long walk with her is where we begin to enter the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom of God means that you are willing to know her worries, her sorrows, her deep sadness, her lack of self-confidence, could it be that her empty water jar is really only a metaphor for the emptiness in her heart and the thirst in her soul? As we arrive at the well with this woman, we arrive not in a spirit of judgment, but we arrive in a spirit of solidarity where we acknowledge that maybe, just maybe, we are no different because we too are in desperate need 
to fill our empty jar and to quench our overwhelming thirst, to feel the life-giving substance that refreshes us from the inside and calms our burdened soul. All of a sudden, at this well, this woman finds herself in the presence of Jesus. And she's surprised. She's surprised that he knows her. He really, really knows her. She says to him, after he tells her about her husband's, she says, I see that you are a prophet. In the book of John, to see is often connected with belief. So when the woman says, I see that you are a prophet, she's actually making a confession of faith. Why? Because Jesus has seen her. He has seen her plight of dependence and not immorality. He has recognized her. He's spoken with her. He sees her. She exists. He has offered her something of incomparable value and worth. Living water, the kind where you thirst no more. He has an essence offered himself to her. He has seen her. She has worth and value and significance. And all of this treatment is stuff to which she is not accustomed. No one has treated her like this. He doesn't condemn her. He does not scold her. He doesn't tell her, go and sin no more. I believe that this conversation in this biblical narrative is intended to show us, the reader, something about Jesus more than anything about this woman. In this text, there is no coming to repentance or forgiveness. Jesus is simply kind. He's loving and compassionate. What an overwhelming moment. That moment when the presence of a holy and compassionate God just bathes a soul thirsty for life. This time alone at Jesus at the well or your, whatever your favorite spot might be is a time of, of open conversation, of, of brutal honesty. It's a time that has the greatest potential to result in the awe and wonder of a deeper and meaningful discovery of the Messiah. Scripture tells us that she left her water jar behind to tell her neighbors about this man, a man like none that had been part of her life and of her past, a man like none other. She couldn't contain that joy she just had to share it. The focus of this story is not her immorality. The focus is on Jesus' profound love for humanity. 
This is also a story about identity because she recognizes not what Jesus offers and who he is. He offers her dignity, yes, but she also realizes who she can be. Jesus invites her to not allow herself to be shaped by her circumstances, but he offers her her real identity in him, an identity that lifts her beyond and above her tragedy. We today have the opportunity to tell this woman's story for what it is a story of the transforming power of love and the capacity to receive and to live into a new identity. I find it interesting that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples before his ascension, and he tells them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. That place that you hate. That city on the wrong side of the tracks. The people you discriminate to those people. You will be my witnesses. And to the ends of the earth. Jesus is now commissioning you, us, to have a seat at the well, to welcome the thirsty into the kingdom of God. Have you ever come to the well, thirsty for life, unempty, burdened, and hurting? Have you ever been there? Have you ever experience what it's like to be thirsty for life. Jesus offers you, he offers you living water too. He wants you to experience what it's like to be overwhelmed by his peace, his spirit, his deep and unconditional love. If you haven't had a drink from his water, I invite you to meet him. His name is Jesus. I invite you to meet the Messiah. Over the last few years, we've had, um, we've experienced a growing love for Pine Springs Ranch um, summer camp. And part of it may have to do with the fact that my kids have worked there for the last three or four years. But something that I admire about camp is that they have an amazing ministry to the children of our church and to the children of the community as well. San Bernardino and Riverside counties send a number of foster kids up to camp every week. But many of these kids also attend alternative or continuation public schools. These schools exist to help kids who are dealing with uh, behavioral problems, academic problems. They help kids who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, um, young teenage moms who are still in high school, etc. They often, they often support and help these kids at these alternative or continuation schools. Um, but these kids, these kids that attend these schools, these foster kids, um, sadly have a stigma attached to them. 
They are often known as troubled kids, as kids with problems, kids that have gotten themselves into trouble with the law. And sometimes they're even uh, labeled as the bad kids. A couple of weeks ago, during the last week of camp, that was teen week, I had the privilege of sitting at the well. I met a 17-year-old girl who came with her empty jar. She was angry and bitter, and these feelings spilled out in the form of violence and aggression. But she was willing to sit with us because there was simply nothing left nowhere else to go. She was desperate, desperately in need of living water, in need of Jesus. The tough and angry girl on the inside dissolved into tears as she shared the story, her story, of being abandoned by her father and left with her drug-addicted alcoholic mom she shared the story of how at 14, she had gotten pregnant and the stepfather beat her up. She shared the story that came from her heart and we listened. She talked about her dreams and we encouraged. She shared her desire to know more about Jesus. She wanted to know if this Jesus was real and exactly how he could help her. For the sake of her two-and-a-half-year-old baby, baby, she wanted to know how she could break out of this downward spiral that had been all of her life. We told her about Jesus' amazing and unconditional love. We told her that she was so valuable and beautiful and that Jesus loved her so very much. The conversation continued and we found, we found ways to see how we might be able to continue to help her and support her. Jesus continues to invite us today to be his witnesses. And if you've experienced what it's like to sit at the well with Jesus, then it's your turn to sit at the well and engage with the thirsty. Look for others like our friend, the Samaritan woman. Look down the dusty road, not with judgmental eyes, but with a spirit of humility and solidarity with those on a hot noonday walk to a well in need of filling their empty jars with living water. So together, Let's view the stories from a different perspective. Together, let us be his agents of love and hope and compassion.